Hi all and welcome to the first episode of Range Anxiety, a new high-tech automotive podcast brought to you by me. My name is Martin Donham. I've been doing car things for a long, long time. And in this podcast, which is going to run maybe once a fortnight, maybe once a month, we're going to roll 30 years of high-end tuning experience into 30 minutes for your listening pleasure. In this episode, I'm going to cover the very beginning. It's what we call the wonder years of automotive tuning, a time when cars were tough, people were tough, and you could smell them both coming before you could see them. Now, I'm going to upset a few people, just with my general banner and carrier. All names are changed to protect the innocent and to protect me from their lawyers. <laughs> and this isn't about anything other than me telling you what happened and why we have the good cars coming out of the aftermarket that we do today. I've been a lot of places, Japan, America, throughout Asia, tuning and obviously all around Australia. And I can bring you some stories that will make you laugh and laugh. And that's what I intend to do. We won't be trying to sell you anything on this podcast. We won't be trying to sell you stuff, make you buy stuff, advertising any product. I foot the bill for this podcast and for this reason, it'll always stay 100% impartial if you consider my opinion to be impartial. But it won't live too long without your feedback. Anyone that listens to this episode and has any kind of feedback at all, whether it be content suggestions or just to tell me to shut up and get away from the microphone, then please email me directly. The email address is dtech, D-T-E-C-H, at senet, S-E-N-E-T, dot com, dot A-U. Also, I like to talk, and I like to talk a lot. Those that know me, and I'm sure some of you already do, and some of you don't, know that shutting me up is an art form all unto itself. So I won't be reading from a written script. I'm doing this in a home-built, really simple little pod booth. You know, so there will be bloopers. There will even be me, like I just did then, mixing words up, messing things around. And, you know, maybe the odd little swear word from time to time when I get excited. But that's all the stuff that comes along with speaking off the cuff and having more than just a little bit of fun. So, without any further ado, let's get cracking with Range Anxiety Episode 1. Oh yeah, the name, Range Anxiety. Well, the boys where I currently am at Powertech Tuning here in uh, sunny little Adelaide, South Australia, they like to consider me what they call highly range anxious when it comes to the electric cars I like driving. Now, I'm not going to prattle on about electric cars the whole time. Yes, I love them. Yes, they're fast. Yes, they're cool. Yes, Elon seems to be a great guy, whatever. But I'm always one that's looking at the levels. And even in a petrol car, I'm looking at the gauges. I'm looking to see temperatures. I'm looking to see pressures. So the standing joke is that Martin's a little bit range anxious. Okay, so let's get into the very start of this and see where it all kicked off. This is what we call the preamble. It's over. Let's get into the meat and potatoes of this show. It all started probably back in about... 1989. I was a software guy, pretty average one at that, mainly doing point of sale stuff back when, you know, 
because there were cash registers that had drawers and people actually used cash, which they don't anymore. But that's a good or bad thing. It's just something that's happened. And I had a family that was fairly car interested. And some of you may have heard an earlier podcast I did for Home TV where they asked me how I got started. Um, it all came back to that family interest. My father, my late father, who was a bit of an auto nut himself, bought a brand new 851 Ducati, the very first of the fuel-injected motorcycles. And he found this guy in Victoria uh, in Apollo Bay. Dwayne Mitchell was his name, and he was a bloody genius. He was a smart guy. There was nothing he really couldn't do with rewriting the software for these things. So my dad did the right thing and he bought a chip for the ECU that extended the rev limiter, gave it, I don't know, 10, 15 more horsepower. Who knows, there weren't things really called dinos around very much back then, not like on every street corner you find the rotten things now. Um, but of course, he didn't figure he was much of a tech, so he said, uh, Martin, how about you put this chip in this engine's EFI computer, which was a Weber Morelli Italian thing, and make it all run for me. And, you know, maybe I won't charge a rent this week. So I said, okay, Dad, I'll do it. So I came around, we pulled the ECU out of this brand new, beautiful, bright red Ducati and promptly ripped it apart to put the chip in it and I promptly stuffed it. It was never to start again. Thanks, son. Uh, there were words. They probably weren't thanks, son, but there were words. Anyway, I then had to contact a mate of mine who was a proper electronic engineer and say, what have I done? He came around, nice guy. He came around and uh, had a look at it and said, well, you stuffed this up. You undid the injector drivers. You took the insulators out from behind them. You didn't re-insulate them again. The thing's earthed out. It's stuffed up. I'll fix it. 15 minutes later, it was running and he was a hero and I was the goose, which is kind of how it continued on for a long time, particularly at home at the time. Um, but this did give us a great idea because at about that time, there was this new pretty tough car that had come to the Australian market. That car was the VN Commodore. Now this thing had 165 kilowatts of fuel injected V8 in it. Amazing thing, you know, straight out of the box, the VN was as fast as the best Brock Commodores that came before it. And we looked at that, and we looked at that not so smooth running V6, beautiful Buick inspired thing that was its uh, stable mate, and thought these things also have a chip in them. So with a lot of uh, mucking around and digging around, we decided to throw in the computer business that we were both working in at the time and start up a little fledgling operation in St. Peter's, in, uh, which is an inner suburb, a city suburb of South Australia, that we named Fueltronics. And we were the chip people. And we did some things that were pretty cool. Some of the things we did actually work. Some... Uh, kind of didn't work so well, but we kind of winged our way through it, which was cool. But we made a lot of great contacts and a lot of these contacts I still have to this day and I still talk with and we share 
these fledgling parts and times of the industry. One such person that I will give notable mention to, and I won't change his name because he is larger than life, is my dear friend, Rob Herod, better known as Big John to me. It's a personal joke, an in-joke. Maybe one day if we're doing a uh, uncut edition, I'll explain why we call him Big John. But we met back then, and, you know, he was uh, mucking around with Ford, engines injecting Windsors and Clevelands and you know now he's possibly the only vehicle manufacturer left in Australia with that superb aspect Mustang thing that he's put together with his mates in the US and managed to put through in Ford warranty uh, and sold through dealerships here in Australia absolutely amazing job Rob and that's why he is you know a man of our times and I'm very proud to call him a friend however I'm not trying to make you listen to this podcast just because I know Rob Herod if you ask him he'll probably say Martin who or maybe not. He's a good bloke. Anyway, there were some exciting things that happened back then, and there were some exciting people around. There are still some exciting people around uh, in the scene, but it's also changed a lot too. There are people that are tuning cars, they're everywhere now. And it seems that salesmanship is sometimes better uh, for the client than technology, which is a little bit sad, but it happens. But back then, not so much, and that's why the scene evolved very quickly. Now, there were two very distinct car scenes in the early 2000s in Australia. One was the Hot Fours scene, uh, which was a great scene. It, you know, there was a lot of magazines around uh, fast and hot fours and small cars. It's a, it's, it was a culture back then that was taken straight out of England, I would say, from Max Power magazine, but anyway, it's a culture that we got here. You know, who doesn't remember Honda CRXs with fish tanks in the boot? Who doesn't remember when they came to one of the auto salon shows here in Adelaide that someone called the RSPCA for torturing a goldfish? These are things I'll never forget, and they were cool things. There wasn't really a lot going on in that scene that was particularly tough until the advent of a certain car that changed my thinking of small cars forever, a car called the Suzuki Swift GTI. Now this thing had a raucous little 1300 twin cam engine in it, didn't make a heap of power, you know, 70 odd kilowatts or something, you'd get like mid 50s or 60s at the wheels, but the tuning scene in Australia grew off the seed that was a Suzuki Swift GTI in about 1991 or 1990 when they came out. Series 1s weren't that popular, but Series 2s actually became quite popular. And some of the biggest shops you know in Australia today, and if you're listening, Jim, you know I'm going to talk about you, Croydon Racing Developments, you know, have some of the fastest GDRs in the world. They started out with some of the fastest Swifts in the world. And it was just a fantastic time to see these guys making parts for these things successfully racing them at a national level in events such as uh, Bathurst 12-hour. Um, uh, there was the Winton 6-hour, I think, and you know you, you could turn on the TV on Sunday and see a Swift GDI taking it to you know Commodore V8s. It was a special time, and it wasn't long before a chip and air filter extractors and exhaust just wasn't enough, and then the turbo kits came. And they came in great numbers and mainly through Croydon Autosports, so I called back then rather than Croydon Racing Development. And 
in that Sydney scene, the Sydney really gained traction in, in, in the car scene in Australia in that time. There were other great guys like uh, Paul Brell with his famous Turtle 180B. I think, Paul, if you're listening, I think you've still probably got that, haven't you? And if you have, absolutely amazing. Enjoy it. And then there was the MR2 Turbo that uh, BD4s did, Paul Brell's business. And yeah, that was a fantastic, it was a cover car, I think, and Fast Fours or Hot Fours or one of the magazines at the time. Really, really good thing and, you know, really set some yardsticks. And everyone sort of continued on with their Swifts and their oddball MR2s and things until the car was released, which was the Subaru WRX. And that forever changed the way we think about performance cars here in Australia. Love them or hate them, like boxes, hate boxes, whatever. The Subaru WRX changed the scene. And even though, look, it's an old man now, it's a dinosaur, it's a relic, really, with the old EJ engine, it still uh, is a pivotal, see, there's one of my uh, mistakes just there. It's a pivotal piece of the scene and one that has just sold in massive numbers around the world because of it. The Rexy was sort of like the first properly fast four-cylinder you could buy. That was accessible. I mean, there was the Lancer GSR here before that, which is the 1.8, which was super torquey, but had no legs. Um, we never really got the Evo here, I think, until the Evo 8. So you had your Holden V8, guys. You had your Hot 4 scene, which was really coming along with the Swift, the Corolla Twin Cam, the Subaru WRX, the Lancers. And some cool old things that already powered with FJ20s and, um, you know, such as Turtle and uh, the 180B and whatever. But then there was the bunch of rich guys that sort of heard about this thing called a, a Nissan GDR that came into Australia in very low numbers, you know, supposedly a hundred of them. Who knows how many were actually really sold. It depends who you talk to. Some say they sold, sold the whole lot. Some say they sent them, you know, a lot of them back. But I first remember seeing one of those parked outside the Adelaide Grand Prix. Yes, this is how old I am. And I thought, what an angular, odd-looking car. But what an incredible machine under the skin. I'd been doing a lot of reading. Reason being is that, uh, again, my father had a Prince Skyline GTB back in the late 60s I think it was and so I'd always been a bit partial to high performance Japanese cars and when it came to the R32 GDR there was no higher performance car full stop. I know people that at the time when they paid $110,000 plus allegedly a $10,000 dealer delivery fee to take the price to $120,000 Back then in 1991, it was priced similar to, I think it would have been a Ferrari 328, um, a a 911 SC, or maybe it might have been a 964 back then. They were all priced pretty similar. And, you know, it was pretty hard back then because nobody took Jap cars seriously. It's when people used to still refer to Japanese products as Jap crap. Almost to a degree. I mean, the smart ones already knew that they had the Mazda rotaries and what could be cooler than that, right? But it it would have been pretty hard rocking up to a party back then and your friends have all got Porsches and Ferraris and you go, hey, have a look at my dado. Yeah, nah, you had to be a real enthusiast. And of course, those that drove them and drove all of those cars 
before they actually put over their hard-earned, they had no problem in buying the Nissan GDR. Those that were more interested in the badge and, you know, how many uh, members of the opposite sex they could take for rides, they would have looked down their nose at the GDR, and they did. And it wasn't really the Porsche, there I go again, it wasn't really the Porsche and Ferrari owners that the GDR upset. More to the point, it was the Aussie V8 Brigade particularly in what they called V8 supercar racing. Now, Porsche, had, sorry, Porsche, Ford had already seen the light and we didn't really have a V8 of any note here that they could sell and race in, in the Group A category. So we had the two-litre four-cylinder Ford Sierra. Supremely fast little car, turbocharged, lots of boost, incredible thing, and it was whopping the Holdens. And the Holden product wasn't that good then. Now, I do love my Holdens, but... Group A forced them to actually make some proper cars. They had problems with the press tin rockers failing in long distance races because the whole essence of Group A back then is the car had to be pretty standard as a road car and they had to produce 100 of each vehicle as a homologation run. And because of this racing that the Nissan ultimately took over and ultimately whipped everyone's backsides in, because of that, we actually got some great cars out of Holden. Who remembers the VL Group A, the original Walkinshaw? What a beast. It only ever came about because they had to make a car that was competitive with the Nissan. And then we went on to the VN Group A. Again, a twin throttle body, bespoke built engine, roller rockers, special ECU calibration, six-speed manual, or as our followers of my YouTube channel would say, manual, six-speed transmission and what a great thing that was now if it wasn't for all of the nissan gdr haters out there if it wasn't for the nissan coming along and spanking the locals we would have never got these great holes and you know they were a product at the time that was so 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 much better than anything the americans made and it wrapped in a sedan body they were the ultimate sleepers maybe not so much in the case of the VL Walkinshaw, I mean, they tended to attract a lot of attention. Like, for example, I remember back when they were new, someone got into one of our HSV showrooms here and drove one straight through the plate glass windows because their security systems weren't too hot back then. And anyway, that was a, a famous Adelaide story. If there's anything famous to come out of Adelaide, that is. So anyway, the GDRs uh, were pretty cool things. And... One of the big advocates of the GDR back in the day was a guy called Kevin Bartlett. Now, Kevin's probably best remembered to all of us that search around old motor racing on YouTube as spinning his Trans Am Camaro Thingo Channel 9 Wide World of Sports car upside down across the top at Bathurst. Big accident. But little did people know that in the background, Kevin Bartlett had GDRs and he used to offer... Fire other companies, I think. You know, my memory's getting a bit hazy on this stuff. An upgrade service for them where you could buy the Kevin Bartlett chip and he could put you onto the right exhaust system. So a lot of these early rich guys went out and bought GDRs and the ones that were game, uh, that knew that Nissan's warranty on them probably wasn't going to be great, went out and bought their chip and their exhaust and they went fast. On the other hand, you had Jim Richards, who was the factory Nissan driver at the time. He was telling people... When you bought one, you got out to a track day and Jim coached you how to drive it. 
And Jim said one of the smartest things, as was relayed to me, because again, I wasn't there. I certainly didn't have the money to own one of those back then. I was just a snotty-nosed kid, kind of. Um, Jim told people, the best money you'll ever spend on this car is on driving lessons. Don't modify it, or don't modify it particularly. Learn how to drive it. And you know what? That really holds true even now with cars. I see so many people, not just GDR owners, that pour money, money, money into cars. And the more power they make, the slower they go because they don't know how to drive them. Well, that concludes this little part. What is different though with the GDR is the Japanese influence. Once everyone got a little bit sick of, you know, just your chip and your straight through three inch exhaust and your R32 GDR, they started to look further afield. And one thing I can tell you about the Japanese industry back then, their aftermarket versus today, is that they were quite nuts. I was fortunate enough, um, and again, I will mention names because it was a good relationship and a fortunate one because I was doing a lot of work for magazines. I was taken to Japan by a guy called Danny Vahumis that had a business in Adelaide called Japanese Motorsport. Danny had kind of a vision that you know you could get secondhand stuff off modified GDRs in Japan. You could pack it, stack it and rack it in containers. You could bring it back to Australia and you could sell it to a market here that only had a chip and a three-inch exhaust. So it was at this time that the whole GDR game became essentially re-turbocharged itself. And some of the fastest and the best GDRs in the world, or at least in the Southern Hemisphere outside of Japan, were coming from Australia on the back of all of these parts and technology that was flowing into the country. These were great times. We saw the first 10-second, 9-second, and 8-second R32s in the world outside of Japan all happen in Adelaide, South Australia, all because of this influence and ready supply of parts. And yes, I was fortunate enough to be around tuning most of them. GDRs are a very egocentric game though, so it depends who you ask as to actually how good I was at it. You know, some of the guys, even though they were racing them back then, still have pretty strong views on things today, and that's fine. Owners, are allowed to do whatever they want with cars. However, the seed was laid and planted, should I say, and this was the beginning of something really, really big that was about to happen in Australia, and we're going to actually cover it. Sorry, I'm gonna cut you short here. We're gonna actually cover it in our next instalment of Range Anxiety. So whatever you do, please, guys and girls, stay tuned and wait for the next update. And don't forget, regardless what you think, send me some feedback. Feedback can only make this podcast better over time. So thanks for listening. Have a great day, night, week, weekend, wherever you are, wherever you're listening, and enjoy.